We all know the name Greg Louganis, and when you hear that, you think greatest diver of all time. But what many don't know is that he got that title despite a difficult childhood where he was bullied and misunderstood to the point he felt such unhappiness that he thought his only way out might be to end his own life. Diving became his purpose, but as many athletes know, the aftermath of retiring from a sport can bring a multitude of highs and lows. What happens to these athletes during their aftercare? They've dedicated their lives to the sport, then what? Here to discuss his story and how he found purpose in life is the one and only Greg Luganus. And now, enjoy the show. So Greg, so happy that you're here. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. So my first question is, what is it like to be Greg Luganus? <laughs> what is it like to be Greg Luganus? <laughs> well, I don't know any different. So, you know, it is what it is. It's interesting that people actually remember who the heck I am, you know, uh, and everybody seems to remember me hitting my head on this, on the diving board in 88. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that's an image, but it's interesting because like young kids, little, little kids, they know me from Sharknado. (laughs) I was in Sharknado five. And then uh, a little bit older, like in 20s, they know me from Entourage, uh, married Lloyd. And um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's, it's really strange how people make associations of who I am. Right. So, yeah. Because you've done so many things to so many different people or generations, you Mm -hmm. might be seen for different things or known for different things. So- Let's go back to your childhood for a second. Where were you born? I know that you were adopted. Tell us all about that. Uh, I was conceived in Midway, mm-hmm. born in San Diego. Uh, my mother was 16 when she had me. And so she put me up for adoption. And uh, fortunately, Francis and Peter Luganus, they were looking for children that my, my father, my the father who raised me was Greek, so he had dark hair, dark eyes, and so my mother wanted uh, her children to reflect, you know, my dad. Mm. So fortunately, they found me, and um, so I, I spent my first nine months in foster care, and uh, and then I and then I was adopted, and I. Uh, my my sister is two years older than me and so she was in dance class because my mother didn't want a classy little kid knocking down lamps and all that and so I was sitting in the waiting room and when I was a year and a half and I couldn't stay in the lines of the coloring books that they gave me and so that was kind of boring so I used to sneak you know crawl under the chairs and sneak into the studio and imitate what the you know kids were doing in the studio and when I was a year and a half, the teacher said, oh, let him stay. Let's see what, he, you know, we can teach him what he can learn. So I started doing dance and acrobatics when I was a year and a half. Mm-hmm. First performance on stage was when I was three. And then when I was three, I got a partner and we started uh, doing recitals and performing at convalescent homes because we couldn't compete in talent contests until I turned six. So then we were doing all of these performances, you know, performing in parades, festivals, all of that stuff. So once we started competing, Eleanor Smith and Greg Luganis 
um, we were winning everything. You know, we, we won all kinds of stuff. She went into gymnastics and I followed her into gymnastics. Mm -hmm. And then when I was eight years old, uh, we had a pool built in our backyard with a diving board. And I was trying some of my gymnastic stunts of the diving board at home. And my mother didn't want me to kill myself. So she got me lessons. Oh my God. And first day after lessons, the coach said, you know, will you join the club team? And I said, well, I'll think about it because I was doing dance, uh, jazz and tap, acrobatics, gymnastics, and now I'm adding diving. Mm -hmm. And so from age eight to 12, I was doing all of these different things. And then when I was 12, I had Osney Slaughters, which is very common for young, active, super physically active children. So I had water on the knee. Uh -huh. And so my, my doctor said, well, you, you should quit the dance acrobatics and gymnastics, but you can continue diving because you don't have the same type of impact. So then that's where my, all of that focus was narrowed to one discipline. And I became world, I was world champion for my age group um, at 13. Mm -hmm. And then three years after that, I was on my first Olympic team. So do you, do you think you were so good at that because you had so much background in the gymnastics and all, all the movement from when you were little? Yeah. I mean, it's like um, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers, mm -hmm. you know, talks about, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, the development, you know, champions aren't born, you know, they're created. I mean, and so all of those disciplines the dance, you know, the rhythm and the timing of dance and then acrobatics and gymnastics, the aerial type uh, awareness and skill set just transferred into diving really well. And did you like diving? It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> my, my first love was gymnastics. I mean, it was my dream to make the Olympic team in gymnastics. But then when I had to quit, then uh, I just, I never thought I was good enough in diving. Why not? Um, I just, I just perceived everybody better than me. You know, everybody was better than I was. Right. And so, um, you know, Ed, but, you know, I kind of tried to do the best that I could. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, my first Olympics, it was really challenging because at that time, Dr. Sammy Lee coached me for a very short window of time. Mm -hmm. um, he was the Olympic gold medalist in men's 10 meter platform in 48 and 52. And he coached Bobby Webster to win two golds in 60, 64. And I was in 76, I was going up against Klaus DiBiase who's going for his third Olympic gold medal to break his record. So my sole purpose on this planet at that time was to prevent Klaus from winning that gold medal. Wow. And I failed. And you were, but you were 16 years old, right? Yeah. 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 So, and you got the silver. And I got the silver. Oh, how devastating. <laughs> well, you know what? The highest rate of suicide amongst Olympians is Olympic silver medalists. Really? Yeah. Because, because they're there to get the gold. And it's so devastating when they don't. You're so close. Mm -hmm. you know, if you get the gold, that's kind of expected. 
Um, but if you're a silver medal, you just not quite there. And if you're a bronze medalist, chances are through the competition, you're just grateful to have something to bring home. Wow. So, yeah, so there's a, and, and also at 16, it was very confusing for me because I couldn't understand why all of these people were celebrating me when I was feeling like a failure. Right. So I want to get into that. So going back a little bit into your childhood, um, you talk about not being happy and having a really difficult time. What was going on? You know, I went to, I, I can't remember how old I was. I was probably around 12. And I went to my mom and I said, because um, I didn't, at that age, I didn't view suicide the way that other people described it. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that, uh, you know, I, I said, mom, I can understand how somebody can die of sadness. Hmm. And that's how I put it to her. So, you know, yeah, I, I had uh, chronic depression, you know, growing up. And you were getting bullied, right, from people? Yeah, yeah. What um, kind of things did they say to you? Well, I, I was going to a school that was predominantly white, Caucasian, and I had darker skin. Um, and so, yeah, I was called uh, a lot of names. Uh, and also I'm sure I was a little soft, uh, effeminate. And so I was called faggot and, and, and also I'm, I'm dyslexic. So I didn't know about dyslexia until I was you know, a freshman in college. I was given dyslexia as a vocabulary word and I read it and I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's me. I, there was a recognition. It's like, oh my God, I'm dyslexic. You know, I'm not all those things that the kids used to say about me, right. because when I started school, I stuttered and um, and I was having a difficult time reading. So I was in speech therapy and um, and remedial reading mm -hmm. so I was set apart from the other kids. What was your relationship with your father like? Ooh, that was challenging. Growing up, it was challenging. Um, and I I'm so grateful that uh, we were able to come full circle because I took care of him the last six weeks of his life. Wow. He died of cancer. And, and that, uh, that time, I mean, that year uh, was just so healing mm -hmm. because he was diagnosed with cancer in, I think, 90. And so when he was diagnosed with cancer, I came out to him about my HIV status. And so then it was kind of a crusade for life and quality of life. And we had some really important conversations uh, about what that meant to us. Mm. You know, that we want the quality of life, not the, necessarily the quality, <laughs> the, the quantity. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was a very healing time. So you and got to make some peace with him. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that, that I'm really, really grateful for. Well, and also when you started to perform and win, I assume he was very proud and was there. What was he not? Yeah, I mean, he got once I started into diving, mm -hmm. uh, I growing up, my assumption was that he didn't take any interest in the dance and acrobatics and gymnastics because it was, you know, growing growing up where I was, that was a sissy sport. And so I thought that my 
father felt the same way. Um, but when we when we talked, he said it was just where he was in life that he was trying to provide for his family. So he had to spend more hours at his job and because he was trying to do the best that he could to provide. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I didn't really see that that part. I, I just knew that he was not there. Right. But once uh, once I started into diving, I think he was on better financial footing. And so he was around a lot and he got a little too involved in my thing <laughs> where I, I did have to ask him when I was 11 years old, I, I asked him not to take me to, not to stay at practice. He could take me to practice, drop me off, but not to stay. Why did he get involved and try to tell you how to do things or yeah. heckle you? Yeah, it was, yeah, the drives home would be total repetition of everything that coach told me and you know and it was yeah it was it was pretty intense right that's understandable i think a lot of kids go through that um tell me about your relationship with your mother i know you um follow sort of a saying that she said which is make everywhere you go better because you were there talk to me about that you know my mother she really was incredible i mean we uh we had a rough start. I mean, I spent my 13th birthday in Juno Hall. I was kind of out of control. Oh. And, um, and so a part of my release out of Juvenile Hall was to uh, go to school, go to practice and be home and help my mother with chores. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, we really grew and bonded at that time. And I, I realized she was the one person that it didn't matter. You know, it's like, these, these are choices that you're making, mm -hmm. you know, like when, when people say, Oh my God, you made all these sacrifices and you gave up your childhood, you know, to be, you know, this Olympian and, and, and all of these pursuits, you know, those were choices I made. You know, and so I was, my mother always made it very clear that it was my choice. So right. I had to stand by my choices that I made. Right, right. She sounds like an amazing woman. Um, okay, so let's go back to your first Olympics. You were a sophomore, you were 16. What mm -hmm. was that like? Tell me about the pressure. How, how much training goes into actually getting there? Like, give me a day in the life. Well, okay, so at that time, and, and my training changed throughout my career because early on it was learning new dives, getting my degree of difficulty up. Uh, and so it was a lot of repetition. And just Today, sorry, out of curiosity, when you're practicing for dives, do you do them all the time in the water or do you start on land and kind of do it like a gymnastics move? Like what does a diver do to, to practice? Yeah, um, so you, you learn portions of the dive. Uh, back when I was, you know, when I was learning my dives, we didn't have a lot of the technology that they have now. Um, that came in the middle of my, uh, or yeah, it, towards the beginning of my career where you had uh, trampoline, spotting belt, you know, the, my, my coach could hold me up and we execute the dive on a trampoline mm -hmm. before we take it onto the board. So we know what we're going to look 
you know, what we're going to feel, what, what we're going to see. So that changed. And when I, when I first started, it was like, okay, put, put a sweatshirt on or something. So if you smack, it doesn't hurt as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I went through that uh, in learning a lot of my dives uh, early on, but Ron O'Brien, my, the coach, uh, he was my coach. Ron O'Brien, he coached me. Um, I went to his camp first when I was 15 and he taught me how to spot. So he had me in the belts. Um, Dr. Samuel Lee, he didn't know how to pull ropes, you know, to do the harness. He didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, but Ron O'Brien, he got me in the belts and put me on trampoline. I learned the dives. He taught me how to spot. And that's when my diving career really shot up. Because after that camp, I, I was a, I, I qualified for the finals in the senior nationals, which qualified me for the Olympic trials in 1976. Got it. Now, at this point, are you feeling better about yourself because you have a purpose and you see that you're so good at things? Did the kids that once made fun of you start to see that you are somewhat of a hero? Like what was going on in your personal life there? I compartmentalized my life. Hmm. What I did outside of school, I didn't let anybody know. Interesting. Because I I had an experience where I think it was in third grade. I did a modern dance routine with acrobatics to Tears of a Clown. And um, one of my bullies, you know, he picked a fight and was beating me up. You know, he's pushing my face into the asphalt. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to show you, I'm going to become the best in the world at something. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm going to show you. So it was kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I did have that motivation, you know, kind of initially, um, but that, that grows, you, you, you grow, you know, I was, you know, pretty dominant for a whole decade, mm-hmm. you know, my first world championship title was in 78 and my last world-class competition was the olympic games in 88 right right it was kind of a decade of of dominance and that is all due to you know my my coach ron Mm o'brien i mean we were an incredible team right so in between there you did go to college you got an athletic scholarship right and then what did you major in drama drama yeah yeah i'm an actor yeah, so uh, uh, drama, minor in dance. So you really followed that passion throughout your life, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's funny because people think that I'm really super competitive because of all of the things that I've done. And I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not competitive. Uh, I, it, it's, for me, it's always about the performance. And that's what Ron O'Brien understood. And so we would play games. He would uh, design these games. In order to break 700 on 10 meter platform, I had to average eight and a half or better on all 10 dives that I executed. Mm -hmm. So some of our training sessions were we would play the 700 game. And so I would go through my list of dives and I'd be jumping back and forth over that eight and a half mark. And sometimes I was successful, sometimes I wasn't. But I, I did that in practice before I ever did it at the Olympic Games in 88 mm-hmm. or 84. 84 is when I broke 700 on a 10-year platform. Right. Um, so in 1980, 
you didn't go to the Olympics because the U.S. boycotted the Olympics in Moscow, but you were expected to win a gold then. Um, yeah. So then you went in 1984. You were probably at your peak of fitness. You had been training. Um, how did it feel going into that to that uh, Olympics? You know, I knew. Uh, well, I I had announced my retirement. I was gonna. I was planning on retiring after that Olympic Games. So you know, I knew. You know, I had to wait eight eight years. The um, the interesting thing is, I didn't feel like I I deserved to be competing on the world stage until after the eighty two World Championships. This was two years after the Olympic Games in nineteen eighty. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was Guayaquil, Ecuador, and Alexander Portinoff was introduced as Olympic gold medalist, 1980. And I was introduced as Olympic silver medalist, 1976. And I remember at that competition when we were being introduced, smiling to myself and thinking, you got the gold because I wasn't there. And so I always wanted my performance to speak for itself. I didn't want to have to speak for my performance. Hmm. And so uh, I was just determined. And at that competition, uh, I, I was the last diver and it was the last dive. And I looked at the scoreboard to make sure that the dive number was correct. And I saw my score flashing. Mm -hmm. So that meant I didn't have to do my dive. I, I already won. Oh, wow. And it was, I think it's still the highest uh, margin that any world championships ever been been won and that must have felt incredible yeah it did it did because it was it was making a statement without having to say it to vocalize to put into words right let performance speak for itself so the 1984 olympics is where you secure your place in history you won a gold in both the springboard and the platform um from that did you you said you were planning on retiring but obviously you didn't so did you get some endorsements were you planning on being on a wheaties box like what was the goal there so i got my olympic gold medals after the 84 olympic games mm -hmm. went to the nationals the usa diving nationals i broke cynthia potter's record for national titles and I was ready to move on. But I was also one of the athlete representatives to push for trust funds to be put into place for uh, athletes after college. They can do the endorsements. They can do the speaking engagements, exhibitions, and all that. And that money they can draw on for their training expenses. Hmm. And so I went to the president of USA Diving at that time, and I said, Phil, what's, you know, what's going on with trust funds? He said, well, the only one that it affects is you, and so we don't have to spend the money on attorneys to get it put into place. And I said, fine, I'm not retiring. Do your homework. Mm -hmm. So my intent was to stay eligible long enough to get the trust funds put into place for the divers that I felt like that was going to be my legacy. Right. And so uh, it took two years to get it done. And I found myself at the World Championships in Madrid and I won. And Ron O'Brien came to me and said, well, what are you going to do? You know, I, he said, it's just two more years to the next Olympics and you right. won the World Championships. I said, yeah, I can hang on for two more years. And but, had you gotten a big endorsement at that point? No. Now, I mean, there were so many, you know, rumors of my sexuality and all that. And, 
you know, a lot of people stayed away, you know, from, you know, from that. It was, it, it was really a different time. Hmm. It really was a different time. So was it known in the public that you were gay or just within your community of diverse swimmers, people doing that? It, it, it was speculated. I mean, any of the articles that that was one thing back then, um, you know, a lot of the uh, sports reporters, uh, they were respected that, you know, I don't talk about my personal life. Mm-hmm. And so they respected that. But there was, you know, plenty to read between the lines. Um, I was out to friends and family and, you know, people who were close to me, you know, that wasn't it wasn't an issue. Um, but, uh, I did sign with the William Morris agency right after the, uh, 84 Olympic games. And, uh, some of the agents said, you know, just tone down the gay thing. I'm like, "Mm -hmm, okay. So, I mean, and I, I felt I justified it that everybody's entitled to a personal life. And so that was kind of how I conducted myself. So I wanted to ask you you know, well, obviously the stigma there, you know, was what prevented then a lot of these endorsements. And, but at the time, I mean, I even remember as a kid watching you and I was, you know, in 1984, I was probably nine, but, you know, I remember thinking you were the greatest. And at that age, you're not thinking about somebody's sexuality, but, you know, so you affect people in different ways. Um, But so I want to ask you, did you get nervous when you were diving? Did you have any superstitions like that you would do or think before you would get up on the platform? No, um, it was interesting because uh, Ron O'Brien, he knew like if I, if I was gonna hit a dive or not, cause everything was just, there's a rhythm, mm-hmm. you know? And I had a very distinct rhythm. You know, if I went too quickly or not soon enough, you know, that can, you know, it's a chances are, you know, you'd probably miss the dive. Um, but there's a rhythm, but also uh, as far as having any superstitions or anything like that, you know, I learned early on that, you know, stuff happens. You know, you, you may have your lucky chamois and it may get sucked up in the gutter, you know? <laughs> so you just, not to hang on too preciously to those, uh, you know, those little quirks or, habits or uh you know superstitions right right i think a lot of us have seen you uh seen the videos of you preparing and standing right before you dive are you thinking anything or are you clearing your mind what are you doing in those seconds before you dive well okay so if you think about it a dive takes less than three seconds Mm -hmm. so you have less than three seconds and in that three seconds is your creation And in that creation is total chaos because there's no mirrors, there's no wires, there's no, there's nothing. It's a free fall. And so every creation is different. You know, you can't re reproduce something that's already passed. Mm -hmm. It'll, it'll be different. So you have to be open to make all of those adjustments to be as successful as you can be at that moment in time. So would you have to prepare and think what you were about to do or it just came to your body naturally? 
Well, it would depend, you know, like it depends on what the, what the dive, what the dive was. There may be, you know, one thing, you know, one point that, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about reverse three and a half, relaxing your shoulders. Um, but oftentimes it's more of a pep talk, you know, that you're having with yourself. And one of the things when I was in ever in a tight situation, you know, I would always remind myself, no matter what happens, my mother's still going to love me. And at my, the last dive of, uh, of my competitive career in, in Seoul, Korea, my reverse three and a half, Shen Ni was leading going into that dive. I had to hit my, my last dive and I had a higher degree of difficulty. So I didn't have to beat him in score. I just had to match him. And I remember thinking to myself, no matter what happens, my mother's still going to love me. And then this image came into my head that my mother's sitting at home, watching it on TV because they were they were home. They weren't at the Olympic Games. And then I do this bomb of a dive. The splash goes all the way up to the 10 meter platform when you're not supposed to make a splash. And then my mother bouncing up and down on the couch, clapping, saying, oh, wasn't that a pretty splash? You know, because <laughs> that would be my mom. Yeah. And it just made me laugh. Right. So uh, you learn different uh, techniques to get yourself in that space away from your left brain, which is judgment, mm -hmm. in, and maintain your right brain, which is performance. Yeah. So now we're talking about uh, the Olympics in 1988 in Seoul. Where was your mindset coming in to that Olympics? You know, Ron O'Brien and I were really distracted uh, going into that Olympic Games because, one, I was the odds-on favorite going in because I was world champion and previous Olympic champion. Um, and also, six months prior to that Olympic Games, I was diagnosed with HIV. And at that time in 88, we thought of HIV as a death sentence. Right. So it's like, if you get diagnosed with HIV in 88, then basically you have two years, right. get your affairs in order, you know, if that. Um, so uh, there were all of these things. Uh, I, I remember Ron O'Brien's son-in-law, uh, they committed suicide, you know, when we were at the trials and, uh, you know, I mean, there were so many things happening in both of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so we were really distracted. I think when I hit my head on, on the springboard, that was, it, it was kind of like a wake up call, you know, to pay attention that nothing's guaranteed, anything can happen. And, um, you know, and he also, he, he gave me a choice. He said, you know what, after I hit my head on the springboard, you know, I thought I was out of the competition, but then found out that I think I was in fifth place. So I would have made finals, but I did have to do my last two dives. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of got us to focus. He, and he told me, he said, you don't have to go back, back out there. You know, you don't have to get back out there. You just hit your bed, that head on the, on the board. That's very traumatic. You know, and uh, I just turned to him kind of a knee jerk reaction and said, I don't want to give up without a fight. Right. And so that's when um, Ryan White, who was a buddy of mine, 
Um, he's the young boy in Indiana that contracted HIV through his clotting factor. He's a hemophiliac. And he fought for the right for uh, other kids in, a, in the same position for education. Mm-hmm. And he was a fighter. And so he was my inspiration to kind of get back out there and, and fight for it. Wow. So let's talk about that moment for a second. Were you, uh, was it like any other dive? Have you done that dive? How, how many times have you done that dive before? Oh God. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, probably, probably definitely in the hundreds, maybe in the thousands. Right. And how difficult of a dive was it that you were about to do? Well, you know what? Reverse two and a half pike was a really solid dive for me. I mean, it was one of my best dives. And, uh, you know, when I was going, doing my approach, taking off the board, I knew I was going to be close because I stood up a little straight. And so when I came out of the dive, I brought my hands in close to my body so that they wouldn't hit because that's what you're usually worried about is hitting your hand or your arm. Um, And I thought I was well past the board. And then I heard this big hollow thud and I go crashing in the water thinking, what the hell was that? And I go, oh my God, it was my head. And my first emotion, I was embarrassed because I was thinking, oh my God, I hit my head on the diving board in front of the world. And I was trying to think, you know, how can I get out of the pool without anybody seeing me? I mean, I was just so embarrassed. And was it painful? It must've been shooting pain or a headache. No, no, because it's, you're in the midst of a competition. It's a high level competition. So you don't feel anything. Mm. You you have the adrenaline going and all that, you know, it's not, uh, and also there were reports blood in the pool and all that stuff, which is total crap because when you get a get a cut like that you know especially in that environment it takes a while before it starts bleeding but at the time there was so much fear and ignorance around aids and hiv and nobody knew you had it besides just your coach right maybe a few other people that were close to you but what was going through your head because at the time did we know how you could contract it did we know how dangerous it was yeah, I mean, really, the only ones that were in, uh, it's blood to blood contact. So the only ones that were really putting any, uh, you know, concern would be the doctors who were sewing my head up, you know, Dr. Ben Rubin and Dr. James Puffer. Which he did do without using gloves. Did that worry you? They didn't have gloves. Mm-hmm. You know, this is 88. This is not, you know, that was not... Uh, Mm, those considerations, you know, it was so far-fetched that anything like that might happen that they, you know, didn't have gloves. Yeah, right. When you first heard that you had uh, HIV, did you, how how did you feel? Oh, well, I thought life was over, you know, because I went in for, I, I was having an, I had an ear issue, and so I went into the doctor and said, oh, by the way, you know, I'd like to do uh, an HIV test um, anonymously. And so uh, my cousin, who was my doctor in Florida, you know, he did it and he said, oh, you don't have anything to worry about, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, I, I did it. Um, but then when it came back positive, 
then my thought was, cause I was training in Florida. I was, my home was in California. And so I thought if I was to HIV positive, I'm not gonna waste my coach's time and everybody else's time. I'm gonna pack up my bags, go back to my home, lock myself in my house and wait to die. Because that's what we thought of HIV at that time. Mm -hmm. And so when Chris came over and told me that I was HIV positive, I just assumed I would be packing up and going home. And he encouraged me to stay. He said, the healthiest thing for you is to stay and train. We don't know how long you've been positive and you've worked so hard to get to where you're at. And that's probably the healthiest thing I could do for myself. And it was easier to focus on the diving because it gave me something to look forward to. I didn't get obsessed with the diagnosis. Right. Right. And I love that he gave you a purpose and, yeah. and a hope sort of. So now take me back to the moment where you just gotten your stitches in and you're getting back on the board because you said you were in fifth or something and you had to do your other dives to, to qualify. How was your confidence level? Were you nervous you were going to hit your head again? Well, yeah. I mean, I because I didn't know, you know, people said, how did you get over that? You don't have time to get over that in order to get over something you need to process and you go through that. I mean, I mean, you understand with trauma, you know, it takes time for that to unfold. I didn't have time. Mm. Um, and so I just had to set that aside. Like it never happened. Right. And I remember, you know, I set the fulcrum, they made it, they announced the dive, which is going in the same direction, reverse one and a half with three and a half twists. And I could hear an audible gasp from the audience. And I took a deep breath and patted my chest because I felt like my heart was pounding outside my chest. And then the people in the vicinity who saw that laughed <laughs> and I started laughing because they were scared for me and I was scared for me. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so, you know, right before I went, I just thought, you know, this is the Olympic games. You can't hold back. So, and as it turned out, it was the highest scoring dive of that, that Olympic games. Right. And you, and you ended up qualifying, you ended up getting the gold yeah. and yeah. then, um, and then you got the gold on the 10 meter platform, like you were discussing earlier against the Chinese yeah. opponent, correct? Um, was keeping that secret exhausting for you? Oh my God. Yeah. So exhausting. You know, it was just terrifying. Um, it was really hard, but, you know, and also what was going on at that same time, I was also in an abusive relationship. Right. And this so, is the person that you got it from? No, not necessarily. No, I mean, a lot of people want to say that because, you know, it, it's easier for them, you know, but chances are we were probably both positive when we got together because my, um, my partner before, and this is before we knew about safe sex and all that stuff, um, he, he died of HIV as well. and complications with AIDS. Yeah. So chances are he was positive, I was positive, and we just didn't know it. Right, right. Um, so after the Olympics uh, in 88, you did retire finally from diving, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. That wouldn't happen. Um, so what is it like for a professional athlete who has dedicated the majority of his life to the sport? How do you 
do your second act? How do you find purpose? How do you define who you are? I think that's really hard for all, a lot of professional athletes. Yeah, it is. I mean, it really is a difficult transition. It is because then you have to kind of uh, embrace a new identity, you know, and embracing that new identity, who is that person? Right. So what did you do for a paycheck after that? I did a lot of speaking, did a lot of speaking engagements, um, personal appearances. That was mostly, I, you know, a bit of acting here and there. You know, I did um, Cinderella, Long Beach Civic Light Opera. I did a one-man show in New York. Uh, I was in Jeffrey for about six months in New York. I did a lot of different stuff. I mean, I, it's interesting because I, I, I really have climbed a lot of mountains and, and varied. Um, I remember when I was at the University of Miami, I was doing Equus and Jimmy Puig was our Dr. Dysart. And he came to me and said, Greg, I understand. I know Greg Luganis, the actor, but I understand you dive as well. I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of on scholarship for that. But, you know, it's just, I always wanted to be accepted in whatever I was doing, whether it was dance um, or uh, acting, you know, to be embraced on my own merit for whatever activity that was. Right. So eventually you decide to write a book and um, you go on Barbara Walters and Oprah and you announce to the world that you are gay and you are HIV positive, correct? Yeah. So yeah, what- at, at, a t- at a time when you don't do that kind of no, shit. Right? So <laughs> no. What made you do it? You didn't have to do it, right? So what? why did you choose to do that? I, I felt that it was the next step in, in my progression, in, in who I was, um, because I felt like I was, with all these secrets, I felt like I was living on an island with barely a phone for communication to the outside world. And so by letting go of those secrets, and, and, and I knew I was probably not alone. Yeah, you know, I think that that was, you know, that was key. You know, if I was suffering like I was, then I'm sure I'm not the only one. And so how uh, was that received by the public? I, I had my mother was really terrified for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of friends who were very, very concerned. But it was amazing when I was on book tour. I mean, thousands of people were showing up and saying oh my god you saved my life right um i you you helped me come out to my friends and family about whatever you know your sexual identity hiv uh uh leave an abusive relationship you know all of these kind of things that people connected with right and you became sort of the spokesman for what you had gone through and your you know, trauma or, you know, the shame or the grief that basically everyone feels. Um, and you, you were able to sort of get it out of you and that gave hope to other people to do the same. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it That's really amazing. was incredible. I mean, the, uh, the book tour was so emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Marcus, my co-author, uh, you know, we, we would be in tears, you know, just, and, and joyful tears. Yeah. That's got to feel good touching people like that. Yeah. Uh, and knowing that you made a difference for, for someone else, that your pain happened to be able to make someone feel connected and make a difference. Um, so 
you then went on to do some advocacy, right, for HIV and LGBTQ. Talk to me about that. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's coming out is a process, mm -hmm. you know, first person you have to come out to is yourself, you know, and you can be coming out about an illness, you can be coming out about who you're dating, or, you know, it's, it, it's a process in, in accepting and embracing who you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and just like everyone else, you've definitely had some highs and lows. Um, and you talk about it, you know, in your book, what was it like to live in the nothing, to live in the low for, for some of the time as you talk about? Um, yeah, I mean, some of the lows are pretty, yeah. I mean, I, I've had really high highs and really low lows. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get through the low lows? Uh, I, I always remind myself, you know, whatever's going on is temporary. This too shall pass. This too, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you also have to be um, willing to let go of the good stuff too. Mm. You know, it's just like you can't hang on to, oh, I'm an Olympic champion. I'm a, I'm a world record holder. Blah, blah, blah. You know, if you hold on to that too tightly mm -hmm. and then it goes, you know, it, then somebody breaks your record, you know, you you know, you, you aren't happy trying to hold on to something that you are no longer. Right. That you were. That you were. Right. So what advice would you give to people that are sort of stuck in their first act? Because I know it's so hard to move to your second act, to find your purpose, to find what makes you happy after you've hit this, you know, major high and, and you feel like that was, you know, that was who you were and you'll be nothing else without that. Tell, talk to people about what it's like to move on from that and reinvent yourself. Well, it's funny because oftentimes what happens is, you know, especially like if you're an Olympic champion, you do this, then people start defining you. Mm -hmm. They start saying, oh, you are this, so you have to be that. You know, and so they choose your path, mm. you know, and as people pleasers, oftentimes we go for that ride for a while. Right. And so then when somebody asks, well, what does, what do you want? What does Greg Luganus want? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to take two weeks and meditate over that. It's like, what, you know, what is it that really drives me that sparks that that interest that sparks that flame you know and and what do you come up with and the thing that came up for me was dogs mm -hmm. and um health and wellness mm -hmm. you know because I, I had two concussions in my diving career I've had issues with that um you know trying to be uh, go in a more natural uh approach to issues of mental health and as well as physical health. Right. You know, how I'm doing, you know, trying to maneuver through the world in, uh, in a positive, healthy way. Right. So you also picked up, you mentored in the diving community, which sounds amazing and right up your alley, obviously. And then you talk about training and showing dogs. Um, you're still doing that, right? Is that one of the things you continue? 
Well, um, so I, uh, I, I was working with the athletes in preparation for London. Um, and it, it was so funny because like when I first started working with them, um, US, U, the, the U.S. has been pretty dominant in the sport of diving. And then after my retirement, then we got one medal in 2000, which was Laura Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. We got zero medals in 04 and they added synchronized diving. So we had four more shots at medals and we got nothing. Wow. 2008, we got nothing. And then when I, I started working with the kids, I said, okay, what's your ultimate diving goal? And they'd say, make the Olympic team. And, and then I'd say, and then what? And they'd look at each other. It's like, make the Olympic team. And I said, well, don't you want to get on the podium? Don't you want to win? You know, none of them were, had that in their training process. You have to train for that stuff. Right. It's not just going to happen. Yeah. So once I started working with them, changing their mindset, they got four medals in, in 2012, three medals in um, 2016. Wow. So you made a difference. And you're still yeah. doing the dog stuff, right? Yeah, still doing the dog stuff. And actually, I, you know, love the dog stuff because it's, they're so pure. Mm -hmm. You know, they, um, yeah, they're, they're not going to hold grudges. <laughs> they're not gonna, you know, second guess, yeah. you know, they're I'm just the really, truly honest. But you do training or you do agility? What exactly do you do with them? I see you on your Instagram. It looks great. Well, I, um, I train, I mean, uh, you know, I, I compete in dog agility. Mm -hmm. uh, with your own dog or with others? Yeah. 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 With my, I, I, I have trained other dogs I, and run other people's dogs for them. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I have G who's my Hungarian Pumi, who's got a lot of talent and have hopes for world team for him. And then Pax, uh, Pax is a Pyrenean shepherd. Oh, wow. And she does agility too. It's just that she, it, it's not, uh, she'll do it because daddy wants her to. Right. <laughs> So can any dog do it if they're trained? Like, can I train my Pomeranian or my rescue pit bull to be doing agility or they have to be born with it? No, no, you can train. Yeah, because physically, you know, they may be limited, you know, to how fast they can go and what they're capable of doing. Um, but given the right education, you know, any, any dog, almost any dog. I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised at some of the dogs that I see videos of, you know, the, the Mastiff doing, doing agility. Uh, there was a, a Great Dane in, um, in Arizona that used to do comp competitive agility, and oh, he was wow. actually really good. With those uh, long legs? My God. Yeah. I mean, he'd actually have to crawl through the tunnel to get through. <laughs> it was just like, it, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that must have been great to watch. Wow. So, and you're going to continue to do that. Yeah. Forward. That makes you happy, obviously, I can tell. Yeah. Yeah, I've got it. I just did a workshop yesterday with an international uh, judge slash competitor. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was fascinating. 
It was, it, it was, it was great because I was away from dog agility for about 10 years and now I'm coming back and so much has changed. Right. So there's a lot of new stuff I have to learn. Right. It's always changing. So yeah. what is going on in your life now? What, what do people have to look forward to with, with you and seeing you? Well, we're still working on that podcast. Um, but also I'm, uh, taking it upon myself to uh there was talk about a biopic and i'm digging in myself you know to write to start writing the script so um yeah so i you know because i it just struck me i was just at the olympian and paralympian reunion a few weeks back and i i was just somehow reminded it just came to me that you know if you don't if you don't write your own story you're allowing other people to write it for you. Right. And, and it, it doesn't always reflect who you are. And I really want something to reflect who I am. And who would you say you think you are? Well, there's a lot of things that I've done that a lot of people are not aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, because other people have taken credit for it. And, um, so, and, and also, um, just not being one to toot my own horn, mm -hmm. which is really weird. Cause like we're in a society now where it's like, oh, you've got to stand up for yourself and speak up, you know, and tell everybody what, you know, and they're bragging about all the things they've done. I, the way that I was raised is let my performance speak for itself do and it will be returned to you right so um yeah so it's a very different mentality yeah and i love what you just said because that's actually why i started this podcast and named it misunderstood is because there are people like you like me like so many that their lives have sort of been narrated for them by the media by um the you know public that you know feeds on what the media says and they just know about one thing most people probably just know that you're the greatest olympic diver ever or the greatest diver in history right but they don't know all the parts to you because there's so much more than that and as a person you know you feel and we feel like you know you want to share who you are not just that one bit because that was something you did once but there's so much more to you that makes you just as great as that so that's literally why i started this podcast and wanted you on specifically because i think that's a huge huge message for people and important for people to know yeah yeah it is and you know just because somebody speaks you know they they're a public speaker uh or if they're actors it doesn't necessarily mean that they are extroverts mm -hmm. You know, they, it's it's assumed that they're extroverts and they're looking to gain attention or whatever, attention seeking or whatever, you know, and that is is not true for mm -hmm. many of us. Yeah. All right. I just have a few more questions before we go. What is the biggest misconception of HIV and AIDS today, do you think? I'm not sure, you know, because I can't speak for everybody. I think that, you know, I, I think there's still some stigma um, surrounding it, but I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know what that is. 
I, you know, I don't understand it because there's so much good information that's out there, you know, of how you get HIV, but also how you don't get HIV. Also, uh, for those that recently seroconvert, that it can potentially be manageable. And so uh, to be mindful, you know, if you're um, undetectable, then you're untransmittable. Yeah. And I, well, I think that it's changed so much since, you know, when you were diagnosed, since I was little, um, the fear really has gone away. It's no longer seen as just, you know, a, a gay disease. Anyone can get it. And, but it's not seen as necessarily a death sentence at all. It's manageable. It can be, you know, you can live a long, healthy life and have no signs of it eventually. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you've been very helpful in the LGBTQ community, spreading awareness. Um, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on politicians like DeSantis, what they've done in Florida, the don't say gay rule. Um, should children be able to learn about sexuality in school? If that happened when you were younger, would that have helped you feel better about what you were going through? Oh, sure. I mean, that, you know, it, it's important that, you know, we give, you know, as much accurate information mm -hmm. out there. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you're not going to catch it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, uh, and also I'm going to add a conversation with a neuroscientist um, who leading uh, researcher for about uh, sexual identity, gender identity, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And he explained, you know, what his findings were. And it's like, yeah, you know, you, when they say that you're born gay, you are. And he has research to, you know, to prove that. And so having those understandings, knocking down, you know, when you have new thoughts, you know, your beliefs are a thought that you continue to think. If there's uh, a flaw in those thoughts, then you have to change your beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to get people to change beliefs, which is really challenging to do mm -hmm. um, because people want to hold on to beliefs like, they're, uh, you know, like they're true, mm -hmm. but you get more facts and understand that it's, uh, you know, maybe those facts aren't correct. Right, right. Um, there's a bill being considered that would give doctors and insurance companies the right to deny care to the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, how do you feel about that? Oh gosh. I mean, it, I mean, it's so silly, you know, that we are, um, you know, you, you need to look at a whole person being LGBTQAI, you know, whatever letter that is, I, that I am, it does not define who I am. There's a whole human being behind each individual. And each individual, I mean, all, all we want to do is be, you know, loved, you know, and everybody is, you know, that, that is a human right. Right. Um, regarding sports, there have been protests around races featuring trans women. Should biological men that become women be able to compete in sports, in your <laughs> opinion? In my opinion, I, you know, I... 
I have a different perspective because of an incident that happened after the 80, uh, in, in 88, I was diagnosed with HIV. They put me on AZT right away because they wanted to treat me very aggressively. One of the side effects from AZT or HIV, low testosterone. And early on in my training, you know, hitting the gym, do you know, breaking everything down before it builds up. I was literally crawling from my bed to the bath bathroom to pour myself the hottest bath to sink into for 20 minutes, you know, before I could even touch my toes. I just thought I was overtraining, but I didn't have my testosterone tested, but I'm sure that that's what it was. I was low testosterone. And so I don't believe that once somebody goes on to hormone therapy, then it's the advantage that all these people are trying to make it out to be that you go through this, you know, testosterone wash and your puberty and all that. Granted, you can't take away the training that you've already done. Once you go on to hormone therapy, there's not a whole lot of advantage. So I think in in time, people will see that, you know, and and understand that. I just hope because uh, the IOC basically lied mm -hmm. about the whole testosterone thing. So we thought that it was based in research, but we've learned that it it's not based in research. It was just a you know, jab in the dark at a number. And so they lied to us. Now we have to embrace that, that information and not hold so firmly to our previous belief. Right. You've had such a tremendous career as an athlete and an advocate. What stands out to you as your biggest accomplishment? Definitely my biggest accomplishment to date uh, definitely was my book, Breaking the Surface, because that was so impactful at a time when it was needed. Yeah. And so that was, uh, you know, that was really incredibly powerful. Yeah, great book. I did read it. How do you want to be remembered? If I'm remembered as a diver, I, I hope they think of me as being strong and graceful. Um, and as a human being, um, that I made a difference. Absolutely. What can we expect um, to see you in in the near future? Your podcast is that coming out soon? Um, podcast. Hopefully, it's coming out soon. <laughs> so many thoughts. Where um, can people find you? Yeah, you can find me. Um, all my social is at Greg Luganis and um, gregluganis.com. It's my website. And do you read your DMs? Do you answer people's responses? Like, do you care what people are writing to you? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I get get on there and I, you know, peruse and say, yeah. I mean, and, and especially, oh my God, I just got an email from somebody um, thanking me for responding to a stranger in Houston mm -hmm. um, about uh, it was um, about um, the medication, you know, the HIV medications and all that. It's one of the side effects and all that. And I answered them, uh, which I, it's random. You know, sometimes I get to it, sometimes I don't, but it was really, really sweet. So yes, I do. No, I, I don't read everything, um, but, uh, you know, there's chances are, depending on 
you know, what's going on, how, how I connect with it and all, then some, I, I respond sometimes. Good. All right. So people listening, you can write him on Instagram and you may get a response. Um, so Greg, you have reinvented yourself time and time again. I think you're a true hero. You definitely have changed people's lives and I can't wait to see what you do next. I look forward to the podcast. I look forward to any, uh, movie that comes out, whatever it is, I will be watching. So thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review if you like what you hear. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at Patreon slash Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or guests that you want us to reach out to? Please email us at infomisunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to see you next time.